Welcome to the Learning in Wartime podcast, a show dedicated to eternal conversations for frontline living. I'm your host, Dane Bundy. In 1938, C.S. Lewis gave a sermon at Oxford University entitled Learning in Wartime. Though war for the whole world loomed ahead, Lewis argued that we must not give up on learning, for the war doesn't create a new situation, but only aggravates the permanent one, so we no longer can ignore it. Today marks the next episode of our podcast, and it also marks a time of great uncertainty, for that's what crises do. But as Christians, our hope is found in nothing less than the eternal and sovereign one, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The crisis of the wilderness is a common one for the saint. When I speak of the wilderness, I speak of it in a metaphorical way, but that, of course, doesn't diminish the pain and confusion that often accompanies this dry and weary time. It's certainly possible that it's we who have caused this desert period ourselves. As you know, idols are terrible masters, and our God is a jealous God. But the cause of the wilderness isn't always our sin or wandering eyes. Sometimes God forges the faith of his saints with the sting of the desert sand. Again, I love what Spurgeon says. This time I quote from his sermon, A Wilderness Cry. If we be in the wilderness, is not God the God of the wilderness? Were not his greatest marvels wrought when he led his people about through the howling wilderness and fed them with manna and revealed himself in a fiery, cloudy pillar? You know, for the saint who longs for God, this is a hopeful time. Spurgeon continues, O my soul, if thou art in the desert now, Expect that God to meet with thee. Today, we'll talk about other ways to survive and thrive in the wilderness. But I would be a fool if I didn't say that our primary directive from Scripture, while in a time of wilderness, is to cry to God Himself O Lord, give me Jesus. I now like to turn to one of C.S. Lewis's wilderness periods. This period goes from 1945 and 1954. To be honest with you, there was a lot of difficult things that C.S. Lewis encountered during this time. We might say that because of his popularity, it brought out rabid critics of him. He had difficulties with his friendships. He started growing apart from J.R.R. Tolkien. He discovered that his friend Charles Williams had just died, and the infamous inkling started to disband. Not only that, but during this time, there was a pandemic. We often talk about the Spanish flu, but during this time, there was an influenza pandemic in 1950 to 1951, which McGrath reminds us that the death rate was about 40% greater than the Spanish flu. We also know that during this time, it was a period of great discouragement for Lewis. There was a woman named Elizabeth Anscombe. She was a Catholic philosopher, and she challenged C.S. Lewis on an argument in his book, Miracles. This ultimately led to C.S. Lewis having to back up, revise his work, but it was also a time of embarrassment for him, we could say. Some have said that this embarrassment with Anscombe was what caused him to move to imaginative apologetics, like Chronicles of Narnia. Alistair McGrath doesn't think that that was the cause, but he felt that there were certainly some things going on during this time which led him to then move to imaginative apologetics. McGrath notes a couple things. He said, quote, There are strong indications in his correspondence that Lewis believed his moment as an apologist had passed and it was time to make room for younger voices. McGrath also notes that he felt like, quote, he had peaked in his abilities as an apologist. 
you know, this is understandable. Lewis was not a professional theologian. He did study philosophy in his undergrad, but he wasn't a professional philosopher either, nor did he ever claim to be. Lewis may not have seen God's hand in this wilderness time, this time of discouragement, rejection, and loss, but we can. (laughs) And it gives us hope that God is the God of the desert. To help us continue exploring the theme of the wilderness, it's time to connect with Bryce Ballard, who will help us see all of this once again with the eyes of faith. Mr. Ballard, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Doing great. Mr. Ballard, what passages come to you or what stories come to you from yeah, Scripture? Yeah, so when I heard that, you know, the podcast this week was going to be about, you know, the wilderness experiences that we all have in our life, you know, the first question that kind of comes to my mind is, you know, what is wilderness for us? You know, we we look through the Word of God, and I did a little study, a word study on the word wilderness, and it's actually mentioned 300 times in Scripture, so it's it's not something that is uncommon to the people of God and his story, right? Um, and some stories that kind of came up as I'm doing this study is, you know, the first one, Hagar and Ishmael, you know, where, where Abraham mm. and Sarai are, you know, were promised by God to have a child and, you know, it, they're becoming old. And Sarah's like, you know, go sleep with Hagar, you know, my servant, and, and and we'll develop a family through her. And ultimately, Sarah, you know, has resentment towards her and sends her into the wilderness. And we see in that moment, God meets Hagar where she is at in the wilderness. Joseph mm-hmm. is thrown into a pit in the wilderness, you know, and we know how that story ends, how, how God kind of came alongside Joseph and blessed everything that he put his hands on. And ultimately the story ends Mm -hmm. in, you know, what you guys meant for harm in the wilderness, God meant for good. And then we see Moses, Mm -hmm. you know, and that Moses kills an Egyptian and runs into the wilderness. He flees into the wilderness. And that's actually the first time he has this encounter with God in the burning bush in the wilderness. We see God meet him there. You know, all of Israel then eventually goes into the wilderness and we see God meet them there and lead them through that. David, when he flees Saul, (laughs) runs into the wilderness. And obviously we know how that story turns out as God meets him there and guides him through, you know, that war and that issue. Elijah, as he gets into this, you know, argument with Jezebel and murders all her prophets, (laughs) he runs into the wilderness And basically we see him sit under a tree and ask God, like, take my life. Like, I'm just done with this world. And we see God answer him and we see God meet him there. Job, you know, all these things are being taken away from him and afflictions being given to him. And actually that first round is talked about as a wind sweeping over the wilderness. Um, You know, that word Mm. is mentioned 19 times in Psalms. And then we get to the New Testament, right? And the three big ones that come in the New Testament are obviously John the Baptist. Um, You know, Jesus, who is interesting because in Mark chapter 1, it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Yeah. Yes. But in Luke chapter 5, it says he chose to withdraw into the wilderness, right? And so he kind of has – he goes – purposely and then goes being led by God there. And then Paul has his own wildernesses. I would say, you know, the two that come to my mind in his life is when he was obviously blinded and afflicted by the Lord. Um, And then, you know, given his sight back, but also what he talks about later in his epistles. And, you know, I have a thorn in my flesh that I've pleaded, you know, God take from me. And, 
you know, what a quote that I, uh, I've been reading this book called the green letters by Miles Stanford. And, and yes. a, you know, it's a paragraph here at the beginning and it says this about the time that it takes sometimes as we're wandering through the wilderness. And he says this, it seems that most believers have difficulty in realizing and facing up to the inexorable fact that God does not hurry in his development of our Christian life. He is working from and for eternity. So many feel that they are not making progress unless they are swiftly and constantly forging ahead. Now it is true that the new convert often begins and continues for some time at a fast rate, but this will not continue if there is to be healthy growth and ultimate maturity. God himself will modify the pace. It is God's way to set people aside after their first start, that self-confidence may die down. Thus, Moses was 40 years. On his first start, he had to run away. Paul was three years also after his first testimony. Not that God did not approve the first earnest testimony. We must get to know ourselves and that we have no strength. Thus, we must learn. And then leaning on the Lord, we can with more maturity and more exponentially deal with souls. And I think we see that even in modern church history. I mean, if we talked about some you know, more modern church historians that, you know, theologians that we think about these, I'm going to list about, you know, six or seven. And these guys were actually 15 years into their life work before they even ceased mm-hmm. living, you know, for self and their desires and rested in God's plan for their life. You know, we think of Chapman, Moody, Mueller, Watt, Hyde, Paxton, Hopkins, Gordon, all these guys that we think, you know, theological heavyweights had been 15 years in their life's work before the Lord kind of draws them out, right? And into um, what his plan was for their life. And I think that's, you know, and come full circle here, the question I asked to kind of start this segment is what does our wilderness look like, right? Because we see all these stories in scripture and they are quite literally (laughs) being brought out into the wilderness, Um but we, no one listening to this podcast is probably being called to, you know, run up out to the mountains for a month at a time right. or run into a desert for a month sure. at a time. So what does our wilderness look like? And like I said earlier, I think it's different for everybody. But for a lot of us right now, our wilderness is, is probably and most likely a time of waiting. Um, and so mm. what spiritual discipline can we have? in this time of waiting. And yeah, yeah, that's a great I, question. I, 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 yeah, you can answer it. We'll see. <laughs> I might, I might just leave a cliffhanger. Come back okay. next week. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, a spiritual discipline that we often forget in times of our busy lives where we're just going, 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 going is that rest is actually a spiritual discipline for our life. And, you know, oh, one that. that the Lord calls us to, and one that sometimes the Lord makes us have to, like Green Letters said, set us aside and realize how much we need the Lord. And a lot of times when we're going, going, going in our daily lives, we just learn to live on our own strength and we strive and we push and it ends in exhaustion. I mean, I remember yeah. a time of wilderness in, in my life where I refused to rest. I would not have it. 
Um, I was waking up at 5 a.m., going to work, try to pay for college till, you know, 11. Then I'd have class from like 11 to 4, and then I'd go to another job, you know, from 4 to midnight, 4 to 1. And I was getting like Mm. four hours of sleep. And I actually ended up in the hospital. Um, And, you know, Mm. and I think part of that was the Lord bringing me into the wilderness and saying like, you need to learn to rest because you're relying on your work ethic and having these two jobs to pay for your college and to please the people around you. Um, And you need to let that go. You need to rely on me and rest in me. And so, you know, and I'm not saying that that's the reason coronavirus is going on right now. You know, I'm not saying the Lord is, is causing this to, to happen so that we're forced to rest. But I think it is a spiritual discipline that he may be calling a lot of us to right now. And it's so hard. We don't want to rest. You know, we, we want to keep going and we want to prove ourselves to the world and to the people around us. And, but a lot of times the Lord is just calling us to rest. And so I encourage the listeners, um, you know, this week, take some time to, to rest, whatever that looks like for you. Spend some time just being. Um, and I actually want to end us, you know, in this segment on a psalm, if that's okay. Mm. Um, and a psalm that was really encouraging to me during my time of, of wilderness, I would call it, you know, where the Lord was like, I'm going to set you aside for a moment so that you learn to rely on me. And it's actually Psalm 46. And it says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the hearts of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought the desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Now listen to this last two verses. These are so powerful in the spiritual discipline of rest. Be still and know that Mm. I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Yeah, there's so much there. I, you know, as you were saying this, I just kept going, yes, yes, yes. And yet I still find it so hard to stop and rest. I mean, there's such a mentality, I think, just in the Western industrialized world that, you know, it's just like we got to hustle. We just always got to be moving. If we're if we're not hurrying, we're lazy. And, you know, Dallas Willard talks about this idea of, you know, the relentless elimination of hurry is one of the first steps to spiritual growth. And I think that, you know, all of our wilderness journeys look different, like you said earlier, and rest for all of us probably looks different as well. And uh, some of us may be being called to a a spiritual rest. Some may be called to a a physical rest or a mixture of both. And I think this is a great place to just Allow our listeners and, you know, and I'm going to do it as well to be prayerfully considering, Lord, how can I rest? 
Well, I think that's a great place for us to wrap up this conclusion. For those who are weary in spirit, weary in body, weary in mind, take this as an opportunity to rest in Christ. Uh, Mr. Ballard, thank you so much. It's always such a great privilege to be with you. Um, We'll look forward to to talking with you next week. God bless. Well, soon we'll be connecting with Miss Carrier, who, as always, helps us cultivate the Christian imagination and pursue what is true, good, and beautiful. But before we do this, I'd like to talk about the third principle of how to approach fiction with a Christian perspective. You may remember, but the first principle dealt with finding echoes of God's story in our stories. The second dealt with looking closely at the structure of a story, especially the happy ending, and how sometimes happy endings shouldn't make us happy, especially if the author's rewarding the hero's shady goal with a rousing and feel-good conclusion. Today's principle continues the discussion of story structure and even the nature of an ending. So here it is. Sad or broken endings in which the hero doesn't get what he wants can be powerful ways to evoke within us an overlooked problem or need. Take the ending of the biblical book of Judges. The very last lines read this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Gulp. This is a heavy ending. And when I read this ending, I can't help but think, O Lord, provide your people with a righteous king so that your people might do what's right in your eyes. You know, this broken ending then points us to the future hope and allows our imaginations to fill in the gaps of what's next. Will God provide this king? Of course, we know how he does in his son, Jesus Christ. So the Christian mustn't be afraid of the unhappy ending No, they often unveil significant needs that can point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, with this said, let's go ahead and talk with Miss Carrier, who will lead us through a Ray Bradbury story that reminds me of this third principle. Hello, Miss Carrier. It's great to have you here. It's good to be here, Mr. Bundy. Thank you. Well, we're going to be talking about uh, The Pedestrian, one of my favorite short stories by Ray Bradbury. And uh, Miss Carrier, would you mind giving us uh, an overview of Ray Bradbury? Yes. So Ray Bradbury was an author who was born in the 1920s. So for students, if you think of like um, your or my great grandparents would probably be a good time to think about people being born then. And then he died um, just in 2012. And he was known for writing all kinds of um you know, out of the box kind of stories. Sometimes he was able to mix some whimsy with some maybe darker or deeper things. So he wrote um, some of his most popular works were The Martian Chronicles and Something Wicked This Way Comes. And then one of my favorites, Dandelion Wine, which is a lot more nostalgic. And then the very popular Fahrenheit 451, which a lot of high school students will read. Often people say this book is about censorship And the reason I'm going to mention this is because um, our short story today is actually a kind of precursor to Fahrenheit 451. So often people say that Fahrenheit 451 is about censorship, but Bradbury says in an interview that it's really not. Um, Instead of writing in response to what was going on politically, like George Orwell, he says in his interview, and I quote, I was considering the whole social atmosphere. The impact of TV and radio and the lack of education, I could see the coming event of school teachers not teaching anymore. 
the less they taught, the more you wouldn't need books, uh, end quote. And then he um, and his you know, interviewer talk about how in the story, um, the government burning the books is actually a response to people choosing to not read things because they find it offensive or they don't want to deal with it. So um, the main character in The Pedestrian is actually mentioned in Fahrenheit 451 and connected to that world. So I wanted to set that up for us. Oh, that's great. And as we jump into the the short story, Pedestrian, this story actually is short. The other short stories that we have talked about have uh, been much longer, but this one's only two pages. So if you haven't read it, go ahead and pause this podcast and go go read it real quickly and then come back. But I'm going to go ahead. That was a great introduction to Ray Bradbury, Miss Carrier, by the way. But I'm going to go ahead and just give a quick overview of The Pedestrian, and I'm going to spoil the ending. So this is your last chance to go read it. But essentially, we have a, a, a lead character. As Miss Carrier mentioned, his name is Leonard Mead, and he is taking a walk. We come to find out in the first paragraph that this takes place in AD 2053. So only about 30 years from, from us right now. And he's, he's taking a walk and he's all by himself. There's no one around him. He's looking inside of windows and he sees people in there on screens, but he keeps describing them using this death language. He, he talks about, he says, uh, quote, whisperings and murmurs where a window in a tomb-like building was still open. So very interesting. And he is walking down, kind of talking to himself, asking questions about what's up tonight on Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9. And then Towards the end of the short story, the short, short story, he is stopped by a police officer and the police officer starts interrogating him, asking him, what is he doing walking? And Leonard Mead says that I've been walking like this for for 10 years. And in the end, ultimately, the police car opens up and tells him to get in. And when he gets in, he realizes there's no one in the police car and the short story ends. On his way out, he sees his house and he notices that while its lights were on bright and warm, it's such a contrast to all of the other houses that are around him. So it's a bit of a, a haunting story, isn't it, Miss Carrier? Yes, very much so. The third principle for approaching a fiction story with a Christian perspective talked about, once again, the importance of the ending and sometimes how endings that are not happy, that are broken, or that have unresolved tension in it, they can actually be very thought-provoking. Would you agree, Ms. Carrier? Um, I think so, yes. Some of the most thought-provoking stories tend to end that way. <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and do this now. Miss Carrier and I have both offered our own interpretive questions. And so how would you feel if I went first, Miss Carrier? Sounds good. All right. So here's my question. It has to do with the death language or the rhetoric that Bradbury continues to use with the individuals inside the homes that Leonard Mead passes by. So here's a an extended quote that quote uh, walking through a graveyard he describes the building tomb like and so here's my question what humane attributes do these people inside these homes lack that give them the impression that they're dead 
And then a follow-up question might be, how does this point us to attributes that make us or Leonard Mead more robustly human? Yeah, I really love this question because I think it hits at the heart of the story, which is probably why you asked it. But um, (laughs) I think that there's some obvious things that they're missing at first. It's found in all of the description of everything that's outside of the houses. So if you notice throughout the story, the things outside of the house are things of nature, Um, constant references to the moonlight and to the grass and um, to the frosty air, things that really engage the senses. That's where you see your beautiful language in contrast to the police car that has a metallic voice and no human inside it. And even mm. inside people's homes, um, the emphasis is not on the people, it's on the screens that they are glued to. And at one point, it actually says, um, using part of one of your quotes, the tombs ill-lit by television light where the people sat like the dead, the gray or multicolored lights touching their faces, but never really touching them. So Mm. one of the things that I would say is missing is community. Um, They are missing contact with the created physical world. They're missing contact with homemaking, which I think we see in the contrast um, between their houses, the way they're lit by the screens. But then um, Leonard Mead, his house is lit by, you know, just the regular um, electric lights of a house that gives that warm light. Um, And so in missing community, in missing these things out in the world, out in nature, Um, they are missing the development of their own imaginations. And I'm not just talking about fiction and imagining something like a story, but what Russell Kirk and really Edmund Burke call the the moral imagination, which is developed by um, reading. And if you look at um, the same interview with Ray Bradbury that I mentioned earlier, one of the things he says is that without the library, you have no civilization. And I would add to that, you know, the library, we think of that as where learning is and where um, the great conversation, as Mortimer Adler calls it, happens. And in contrast, Ray Bradbury says of the news and the media, he says, quote, we bombard people with sensation that substitutes for thinking. And so all of that, that community and that ongoing learning and development of the soul, which is what the moral imagination is about, that's really what they're missing. And it's really encompassed in why Leonard Mead says that he's walking when the police car questions him. Questions him. He says, well, I'm walking to for air and mm. to see. And mm. those are the two things that everyone stuck in their side stuck inside their houses and glued to their television screens. That's what they're missing. Their lives aren't actually simple. They're distilled or sterilized. Boy, that, boy, that was great. You know, it's interesting because Leonard says that he was out there to see. Mm -hmm. And it just reminds me that, you know, the people who are, are really like dead in their tombs inside the homes watching TV. They're seeing things too, but there's a very different sense in which Leonard Mead is using this word see. And it reminds me of this idea of leisure, which was, which Western Civ was based upon. And it's this idea of time apart from work to think deeply about the things that matter the most. And that's what I think Leonard was doing. Walking plays such an important role 
in leisure because often great ideas come. We're able to work through so many complicated you know, ideas and such when we're walking and when we're in leisure. And this is such a contrast to those who are stuck inside their tombs, passively taking in what's on television. Exactly. Now, you brought up a number of great questions, and you told me to pick which one I wanted. And there was a lot of great ones, so it took me a little while. But I focused on this one. You asked, why was crime ebbing and there was no need for police? Now, I didn't mention that in my summary, but that is true. Bradbury tells us that there was no crime and that, what is it, about 10 years ago, the police force went from three to one. <laughs> yeah. Why is there no no crime any longer? And, and I was thinking through this and I wonder if the reason is because this society has taken out the humanity of its people literally has kind of sucked it out by removing community and just these people are now passive um, watching this television and they're like they're like dead well and the truth is this is kind of metaphorical but dead people don't do anything wrong yeah. <laughs> you know That's dead people true. don't do anything they just mm -hmm. they just sit there yeah. and this does remind me of once again we talked about this before but in the space trilogy and Lewis's final volume, That Hideous Strength, in which the NICE, this corporation that's really trying to control and sanitize creation and make it all easy to manipulate, I think that this is essentially what this society has done. There's no crime because there is no, there's no humane element left in, in this society. Yeah. And it's actually almost as if, just to go along with what you said, the person who is actually arrested, so what would be considered a crime, is the person that we would say is living. Yes, that's right. And what? And he says that he needs to be taken to a psychiatric ward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because, oh, what does it say? Uh, the Psychiatric Center for Research on Regressive Tendencies. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, and you know, this does have that ending, that is broken in a matter of speaking. If we speak about a broken story as a story in which the hero doesn't get what he wants, and we know what Leonard Mead wants, he says that he wanted to get air, to see, to just walk. He wanted to mm -hmm. have leisure. Mm -hmm. And that was stopped short, and he was basically taken away and put into this psychiatric ward. And it makes us feel a heavy weight. Mm -hmm. It causes us to to think about, okay, you know, what next? What is missing here? And I think that uh, in your answer to my question, you really talked about how um, the humanity is missing here. And there's a great contrast between Letter Mead being alive, that last vestige of humanity in this particular society, and then the rest have been killed. And I would probably say that a lot of it probably had to do with their own choice. I'm sure that the government didn't force them. They probably lulled them into this death. Mm -hmm. But but this question just came to me, Ms. Carrie. As you're a, a teacher of literature, English, and 8th and 10th grade, what can we do? Here we are in a time where we are quarantined and we have television lights all around us. What can we do to make sure that we hold on to our humanity? 
Yeah. Um, well, one, I would say, because I'm a Christian first and that permeates, um, you know, just all of teaching and it really, you know, connects with us being human. First, um, as you and Mr. Ballard have talked about, I think prayer and the word um, and taking a rest. Um, and then that will set us up for how we interact with the people who are in our homes. Because the reason that people are dead in this story is not because they're stuck in their homes. Hmm. It's why they have chosen to be stuck in their homes and what they're doing with that time. And obviously we are doing a podcast. We are working with technology. We are teaching online. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with that, but everybody's saying this, you're going to need a time to unplug and to read stories, um, Mm. to tell stories and something that, you know, I can say this just as an older sister with siblings who are teenagers um, and in college is lately we have really found ourselves talking a lot about the movies that we are watching and the shows they are, that we are watching. So if you notice in the story, people are just mindlessly consuming. They are glued. To, it's not touching them at all. Well, in order for it to touch a person. Um, one, it needs to be something that's actually worth your time. But two, you're going to have to have that interaction of discussing. And really, the reason, one of the reasons for teaching literature, for teaching stories, is so that when students encounter stories, whether written, whether spoken, or on a screen or in a podcast, that they will know how to dialogue with that and how to internalize it. And um, it produce something in them, some kind of, of virtue. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Ms. Carrier, thank you so much. Great insights today. And listeners, next week, we are going to be shifting gears a little bit. It sounds a little bit haunting in light of what we just talked about in this <laughs> short story, but we are actually going to turn to the silver screen. And next week, Miss Carrier and I are going to discuss a movie. And this movie is on Netflix. And the movie's called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. This is a hopeful story amid a background of tragedy. And I just think that it's a great story for us to discuss. So I'm really looking forward to it. So try and watch that before next week and we will see you there. Well, at this point in the podcast, we turn to our last segment called At a Moment's Notice, where we do a little bit of improv, which is always fun. Mr. Ballard is here with me and he's my first victim, I mean subject. (laughs) We're going to be playing the game called Liar. Yes, this is a very fun game. Mr. Ballard, this is what you're going to do. You're going to start with a very simple, honest story. No, nothing about aliens or making anything <laughs> up like that. Just a, a story that you've experienced yourself. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump in and I'm going to say liar. And whatever you had just said, you're going to immediately change it. So um, so if you say I went to the grocery store and I say liar, you say Walmart. And I say liar. And then you immediately <laughs> change it. And we'll just see where it goes from there. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, here we go. And begin. One time, I decided to go for a walk with my dog, Winnie. As Liar. we <laughs> With my dog, Fido. And Liar. with my dog, Cheesecake. <laughs> and as we were walking along, I noticed the beautiful mountains in front of me and decided that 
we were going to start running. Liar. So that we were going to start jogging. <laughs> Liar. <laughs> that we were going to crawl. There you go. <laughs> to, to get a better view of the mountains. And as we were crawling along on the sidewalk, I looked down and noticed some really cool chalk on the sidewalk and (laughs) I noticed some really cool cracks in the sidewalk (laughs) and decided to stop and gaze into these beautiful cracks that were in the sidewalk. I love it. Great job, Mr. (laughs) Ballard. All right. Well, you want to try me? Let's, let's uh, put me under the microscope now. Yeah. You know, you made me make this story, put me on the spot. Let me put you on the spot. All right. Go ahead. Here we go. Um, Let's see. Uh, this last Friday, my wife and I were liar. Uh, this last Friday, my dog and I were driving um, around to visit the seniors and uh, liar. to visit the kindergartners and celebrate liar to um, visit uh, Mr. Holland and celebrate his graduation <laughs> that he had about twenty years ago. And while I liar uh, that he had about forty years ago. And when we returned to his house, um, we noticed that he was not at home. And so we decided that we would walk around in his backyard. Liar. We would go up on his roof and we would go Liar. through, we would go down his chimney so that when Christmas time came, not only would the kids receive Santa Claus and Christmas presents, but Mr. and Mrs. Bundy. Liar. And. Uh, would receive not only Santa Claus Christmas presents, but Mr. and Mrs. Bundy and all of our extended family. <laughs> it would truly be a great time. <laughs> Good job. That was awesome. All right. Thanks, man. All right, friends. Well, you can do Liar at Home. And I would love to hear stories of how that went. Mr. Ballard, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our time for the Learning in Wartime podcast. I'm Dane Bundy, your host. Thank you so much for listening. My prayer is that this podcast would be a great encouragement to you in this time of war. And remember, today's going to be a great day, for our Lord reigns. Rest in Him. See you next week.